Best Words Podcast, episode 17. 17. Seems like a long time since the last one. Cheers. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by the uh, Balvenie Doublewood 12-year, which is uh, cast once in a... Uh, whiskey cask. Whiskey cask, and then cast a second time in sherry casks. The whiskey casks apparently... Yeah. Uh, I'm um, giving across a vanilla notes and uh, <laughs> and um, the sherry, the sherry, sherry well, yeah, giving um, a sweeter, oh, well, fruity yeah. and honey depths yeah. according to that. <laughs> this is probably the point where I should mention where we don't actually get endorsed by Scotch companies, but yeah, if there are any listening, yeah. by off chance, you know, we are easily bought <laughs> as as long as you're drinkable. So this week we're going to talk about uh, two new releases. Yep. One which one is that's in, currently in in cinemas. Yep. The other one's due in cinemas on, I think, the 28th of March. Yeah, and we're kind of getting soft because, you know, a couple of podcasts ago we talked talked about um, a love story with um, the Red House, and mm. now we're talking about two love stories. Two love stories. Which, yeah, I mean, we're just sentimental bastards, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That me think. Yeah, exactly. So, um, let's start with the film by noted sentimentalist Michael Haneke. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> a highly sentimental um, romantic comedy, I think I called it. So, this one played at festival last year. And um, both of us missed it. Yeah, and that was my, my sob yeah. story that I've mentioned before, and I'll mention again, uh, <laughs> that I mistook the ticket stub for uh, one You're never getting over of, this, are you? Instead of 11 a.m., and so I missed, I think, probably my, my only chance to see it in 4K at the, at the Civic. And I, um, I actually drove down to Hamilton to see it after missing it in Auckland. And you so, missed it still? No, I saw it there. Oh, right. Okay, um, yeah. But yeah, um, and I saw, I saw it in 4K in mm. Hamilton with uh, Steve Chow. Hamilton? Hamilton, yeah, scenic Hamilton. Where's the 4K cinema in Hamilton? Uh, they brought a projector into the Lido for that one. So wow. Yeah, so it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. um, you've had a much more recent yeah, screening. Yeah, I, I, I so, saw, it, saw it recently. Before um, we get into it, though, Haneke is probably worth talking about. What's your feelings about him in general? I really like his stuff. He's got a very... I'm not sure if clinical's the right word. I would certainly second that. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a clinical... It's, it's, it's not a detachment, but he, he has a very kind of intense style with, with his shooting, um, in that it's, it's highly observational, and it's often shooting what are very intimate kind of moments, but in a very kind of unsentimental very specific way where it repeats framing and shot across a range of situations with the same people as their kind of emotion and awareness of what's going on in the film develops alongside our awareness. Yeah, I mean, it, it, some of the techniques that you're th- probably thinking about is like his general uses wider shots yeah. more often, uses yeah. longer takes, um, and there tends to be a lot of restraint, very little mm. score, if any. Yeah. Um, and um, a lot of the techniques that are traditionally used for manipulation of the audience are removed. Yeah. And so you just have these, often these performances playing out in real time. And I think the interesting thing is that you think that actually that maybe that sounds artless, but having yeah. tried to make a film where I did long takes, you learn that it's actually a much more subtle art of moving actors around the frame mm. to create certain things and knowing how long to hold shots for and knowing when to have slight camera moves. And he he's interesting because he actually came to directing films quite late. He came through television and did several TV movies before um, That's interesting. Benny's Video, which I think is his first film. And then I think it was in his 40s when he started directing films. And so he's, you know, despite only having been directing in the 80s, you know, he's getting up there yeah. now. Um, you know, he's 
the gray-haired gentleman. Yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> that, and, um, but he has had quite a thread of, um, I suppose, challenging audiences and sadism throughout his films. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, Funny Games being the most notorious of yeah. the bunch. But, you know, Hidden, Hidden, Hidden yeah. which I saw. You, were you at the film festival? No, no. That was a stunning screening of 2,000 people in the Civic flinching mm. in unison at a scene which will remain nameless. Yeah. You know, The Piano Teacher is another film that's hard to yeah. watch. Benny's video I haven't seen, but I know no, that I there's moments it. in that. Um, there seem to be quite a few where he's called animals as well. There's I saw the White Ribbon at World Cinema yeah. Showcase, and that had a couple scenes in it where, you know, it's very... Yeah, yeah. And so I went into a moor not really knowing what to expect. I thought it might be a quite ironic title. Um, <laughs> Except that it's not. It's not. And I'll yeah. pre- preface this by saying, like, I ran into another... Um, critic who um loved the film as well and he was saying like a couple people have described it as quite off-putting or you know that it's a hard watch and thought that that was quite an unfair assessment of it because it actually is quite sentimental Mm. uh it's not no it's not sentimental in in the way that it treats the subject yeah that's probably not the right word it's unsentimental in that it doesn't romanticize yeah but it but it has a humor to it it's romantic like i would call it unsentimental but romantic and yeah. in, in the broader, what I think of the more truer sense of the word romantic. Here's so the setup is that, and we'll 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 give the setup away, mm. and maybe not much else. It's a couple that's in their eighties, yeah, and have been together for a very long time, yeah. And then one of them has a stroke, yeah. And then, and the, so the nature of of their life and roles and relation to each other change, yeah, yeah. And I think I think it's something I, I in my reaction when I saw it, you know, I saw it with an audience that laughed quite a bit, and really? um, gentle laughs, but there are oh, quite a few laughs in it yeah, if you're yeah. attuned to it, you know. Mm. It's the laughs of people who have been together for a long yeah. period of time and have these moments, and um, and I, I kind of went in expecting to be emotionally devastated, and I was quite surprised that I wasn't. And one of the things that I felt is like, from my perspective, not having to had gone through that with a direct relative, there wasn't necessarily a emotional thing in my life that it triggered or anything and given that you know if you're with somebody for 60 years when you're in your 80s die they they have an act you know something of natural causes Mm. that brings about their decline and they are fading away in the arms of a loved one that's not a worst case scenario that's pretty close to a best best case case scenario scenario. you know short of like the you're you're 97 and you decide to go on a skydive together and the parachute doesn't work and you both die at the same time you know like apart from those kind of science fiction fantasies that we wish like i mean by definition i'm not going to get to 80 with a love of 60 years you know and so i yeah i i couldn't get too worked up about the sadness of it and and there's some tough moments in it there's no question but there's so much honesty mm. in both the toughness and in the tenderness yeah, yeah. that it was a surprisingly well-balanced, approachable yeah, film. Yeah, it you was know? quite re- approachable. And th- that was some... Um, I thought I, I, th- I thought it definitely was a softening in terms of subject matter. Mm. And it, it was very cool to see, because you don't see too many of them, uh, a, a love story of love that long, of, a, yeah. of an enduring love, and with older people um, yeah, well we remarked on it I mean, before but yeah. you know apart from like the red house and away yeah, from her yeah and, because uh, um, hollywood tends to steer away from old people on the yeah <laughs> or if they do it's comedy you know yeah. it's like an about schmidt or something yeah, like yeah. that where it's like oh look at the kathy Bates, she's yeah. old and fat yeah uh-huh. you know so it was it was very cool to see 
a very real realistic portrait of a relationship play out and, and mm. I, I agree with what you what you say about the difficulty and the tenderness of, of relationships because I, I guess as you get older I mean I can only guess I've been in a relationship now for uh, I've been married for like eight years and I've, we've been together since 2000 so I guess it's 13 but we've been friends since like you're going to add out that pause aren't you <laughs> <laughs> but we've been friends since uh, you know 1991 wow okay um so we've got a, a length of relationship, but it's yeah. it's nothing like quite that far, you know. Well, hopefully, in forty years it will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and it is a, a case of kind of familiarity, but continuing to to develop and change and learn to learn about each other. Yeah. A, and there is like that that tension of um, discomfort and dissatisfaction paired with immense satisfaction and knowledge that mm. someone knows you that well. It's interesting, like, a lot of love stories and ones that I really hate in general tend to um, end quite early on in the relationship on this moment of um, everything's going to be all right happily ever after, you know? And and you know that's not going to be the case. And this is, like, almost the exact exact opposite. Instead of, you know, ending on that, you know, infinite bliss that extends into the future, it's like, no, we're going to actually look at the tail end of that and admit that this bliss doesn't extend forever you know that that glowing feeling you have when you come out of the theater is not going to last that actually as horrible as that situation can be there's something beautiful about having somebody to go through it with yeah 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 i mean that's one of the really interesting things is the change of the nature of like the husband's role from husband mate to husband caregiver essentially and what that means for him and for them and it's yeah, it's really interesting. I, when I was thinking about it, and 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 I wrote a review about it, um, I commented and and quoted someone else actually, um, Kevin Lee, who uh, also like life, yeah, yeah, yeah who writes for IndieWire and a bunch of other publications about how I found the performance of um, is it Jean Jean Louis Trintignant, Jean Louis Trintignant, Trintignant, yeah, to be perhaps a little more complex. For me, than Emmanuel Riva, yeah. which who was fantastic as well from my point of view, but who's been sort of more recognised. She has the more conventional, yeah, yeah. showy, yeah, performance has the showy well, role yeah. because she's the person who's sick. And but Kevin, but Trintigan has the more complex emotional yeah, journey because he has to he has to respond to that and be mm. the person who's well, but has to deal with this kind of change in their relationship and what does it mean? And then he's the one who's more. Frequently having to deal with family members and yeah, yeah. fall out of that kind of um, emotional relational thing. Well, and even just dealing, yeah, with yeah. caregivers and arranging yeah, all those yeah. sorts of the, things. The nursing staff that that yeah. like to hire and all that, and the and the problems yeah. that 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 happen with that. Did and you so, um? Are you familiar with either much of their earlier work at all? Did that have any sort of resonance no, for you? No, because um, they actually are um two actors that I didn't even know were still really doing anything. But uh, okay. Trentigant is in Z, which is an amazing oh. film by Costa Gavras. Um, and and is quite you know young and charismatic yeah, in yeah. that. And Emmanuel Riva is in uh, Alain Rene's uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and as quite young and beautiful in that. You know they're both really seminal films of a certain age. Yeah, for yeah. me at least, and I kind of imagine for Hanake as well. Although maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but I can imagine him. You know, they're they're a bit older than him, so I can imagine that you know when he was thirteen or fourteen, that they could have been things that were coming yeah. out and capturing his imagination and. You know, I'm I'm not going oh, to go. So th- you've got to think that he knows who they are. And, oh, of and, course, yeah, yeah. Certainly, there's an element of that, and you <laughs> wonder if there's like kind of a, you know, we're at this point right now. We're at the end of one cycle of film, you know, with 
conventional film dying. Um, this was, I think, Haneke's first film shot on digital, potentially. Oh, no, that's not true. No, Hidden it, was shot on digital, yeah. wasn't it? Strike, strike that whole theory. But, um, you know, we are moving into a different age. And yeah. so, like, the age of 35 millimeter and and potentially to the, some extent the age of auteurism being what it is. I mean, I found it interesting recently when I learned Haneke still teaches. Oh. You know, he doesn't make a living making these films, or apparently not enough of one wow. to sustain okay, well, that. That's you know, always and, unsurprising. But. I, I, in a way, but it's like, if Haneke can't make li- a living doing... Who can? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, other than, you know, Joss Whedon or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that, that is a film about love and also about death and mm. suffused with what it means to say goodbye is a very interesting thing. It's, yeah. it's not even clear where he would go from here as a filmmaker, because it's yeah. such... In a way, if Haneke died tomorrow, it would feel like a final film. Yeah. But presumably he has more in him. Presumably there's more to come. Um, if he lives another 20 years, coming he could have film? another... <laughs> uh, you and your fucking coming of age films. <laughs> so did you have anything else to say on that, or should we move to our other love story? Well, I guess uh, perhaps a bridging thing. is One of the things that I liked about both of these films that we're discussing is the opening sequence... Well, and actually, and, and more, it's, it's just past the opening sequence. Um, a, a little picture of the couple in a very, to put them in a usual sort of situation prior to illness. So it shoots them at a, a concert. I, I love the way that he sets that up. And so it's, it's essentially, they're at a, a symphony performance, perhaps, or maybe it's a, oh, I'm not sure if it's an opera. I can't remember. I think it's actually, it's, it's like an orchestral sort of performance. Yeah. The camera's set on the stage, so you don't see any of the musicians. All you see is the crowd enjoying it. And he doesn't... He ma- To my mind, he makes a point of not pointing out who the lead couple is. So unless you've seen the posters, you don't know. And to me, that was setting up a sense of... These are everyday people of a certain set. Obviously, they've got a bit of money because they're enjoying the theatre and what have you. That this journey is happening to. It also is significant in that it's the only scene of the film shot outside of the apartment. Yeah. Um, sets up... A kind of a contrast to the rest of the film. So the the second film we're going to talk about tonight is um is um, Jacques Audiard's Rust and Bone, and likewise, but for him it was the very opening sequence. It's this short thing across, I think pre credits maybe, or pre opening credit bit um is um two heavily contrasted um, visual shots. One of this kind of murky, bubbly shot. And then the next, a very quiet shot, uh, which is dirty and looks a bit ugly. Actually, um, doesn't doesn't sort of strike as a as a as a lovely looking shot, but it's, mm. that says something about what it sort of comes to later on. And then, butted it up against um, a very peaceful shot of a child breathing, appearing to be asleep. Um, yeah, it's interesting because yeah, both and, those and that sets up yeah. the film and and a couple of sort of visual and tonal dialectics in the film. But both those shots kind of address those filmmakers in a nutshell, because, I mean, mm. that shot uh, in Haneke's film, I noticed it as well when I saw it, and it's fascinating, and it's sort of an example of the quiet art of making a single long-take wide shot work, mm. because there's very quiet color cues and how he's laid out the audience and mm. stuff that do slowly draw your eye to them, yeah. but they're they're subtly done, and... Mm. If you're not looking for them, you won't notice them. It's yeah. not like there's a spotlight on them and not on everybody else, but it's just certain things. Uh, and the slightly, slightly voyeuristic yeah. kind of... It, it's like, you know, that there's um, David uh, Ordwell uh, came a few years back and he talked about the studies of this guy who runs a blog called Continuity Boy. 
that would do these tests of eye tracking, and he would like look at people watching a film, oh, yeah. and so like. And he'd have these, they'd have these little goggles on and say where they're looking at any point. And so if you look at a filmmaker like Hitchcock or Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, Mm. were two of the examples used, like there would be these huge clusters of these dots at a certain point in the screen. And those filmmakers knew very specifically how to compose their image and everything else so that your attention was where they wanted it. And then you'd see a frame from a Lars von Trier film and there would be dots all over the place because, you know, he's just, you know, deliberately because, I mean, he knows how to do better, but he just th- doesn't like to, <laughs> you know, is using mm. this very anti-style technique mm. that means that nobody knows quite where to look at any point. So yeah. you almost have this even distribution of red dots over a screen unless there yeah. happens to be a breast or something. <laughs> <Which> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so Hanukkah has that sort of Hitchcockian kind of ability I think of just so much experience in his film that he mm. he can take what seems like a very pedestrian frame and at a certain level, line, yeah. but knows how to work it so you know what you're looking at. And I really respect that artistry. Yeah, Audiard has used very different styles in his his films. He's made a film called "The Beat My Heart Skipped," which I'm quite fond of, mm. uh, which is about a French pickpocket and based off a of James Tobeck film called "Fingers." It's very mm. handheldy kind of. Um, uh, has an electronic-y score, a very cool kind of texture. And then he made a film called A Prophet, which played at the film festival yeah. a couple of years ago, which I didn't like very much. A lot of people loved that. I um, liked it. Also a film called Read My Lips, which is a, a heist film that um, was one of the first films that I saw that relied excessively on um, Shallow Depth of Field because uh, it involves yeah. a deaf character, and it actually made sense there, unlike everybody yeah. else who's used it since. So he's a, he's a bit of a stylistic magpie. Yeah, yeah. And that really comes through in Rust and Bone, which has abstract shots that almost could have come out of a Stan Brakhage film. Yeah, yeah. Back to back with very locked off shots. Yeah. Films that seem, shots that seem like they could have come out of a Darden film. Yeah. All thrown together, a score that goes all over the place. I mean, at one point there's a electro remix of a Bruce Springsteen song off Nebraska, yeah, you know, yeah. State Trooper, you <laughs> yeah. know, which is, you know, just this stark acoustic thing. Hmm. And in that kind of, um, yeah, at a certain level, he's, you know, almost the tonal opposite of, of Hanukkah, yeah. which is very committed to this very specific aesthetic. Hmm. And Audiard's um, aesthetic is a bit about whatever works, but maybe we should step back and talk less about the aesthetic and more about the story for a minute, because okay. I hear some people like that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't understand that, but we can go with that. So Rust and Bone um, is an odd kind of well, yeah, a love story, maybe. Um, oh, definitely a love story. But it, it, it's strange. Like In some ways, I, my read of it was that it was, it was almost like a Hollywood-style romantic drama except that there was something slightly off about almost every facet of it that, that made it incredibly interesting. And, and not accidentally. It was very purposely off-kilter, for want of a bit of a term. And so you've got this, these two characters. One is uh, a guy who um, is down on his luck. He's out of work. He's um, got a young son who he apparently has limited connection to, but seems to be having custody of him now. Yeah, and um, he's a Belgian who's come over to yeah, France to live France. with his sister. Yeah, to live with his sister, who's also not in a great space. Um, and then contrasted with the other main character, who's played by Marianne Cotillard, who is, you know, in contrast, in stable employment, interesting employment. She works in Marine Park. But she's got some, some issues of her own during the course of 
some playing out some of these issues. Um, they meet um, when he's doing some sort of security work, um, and she's at a club, yeah. and then they kind of have this sort of one-off meeting, which sort of doesn't really turn to much until uh, a sort of a dramatic crux of the film happens. We're going to avoid talking about that. I, what do you yeah, think? let's avoid talking yeah. about it. Um, and so. Um, Visual so, effects are involved, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, something happens and causes some upheaval, particularly in her life, and um, she decides to reach out to this person who she had this one-off kind of connection with, or at least he showed interest in her, and she decides to sort of get in touch with him because he left his number with her. And from there they grow this very kind of odd relationship which has kind of a contrasted dependence, emotional dependence versus complete lack of dependence, and to, to my mind, two completely opposite um, character arcs. For me, <laughs> her character arced right at the start, and his doesn't arc until the very end, and even then you could argue that maybe it didn't really. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting what you're saying about it being a Hollywood film, because actually, um, have you seen much Fassbender? Fassbender. Rainier Venner Fassbender. He did uh, Merchant of Four Seasons and uh, Ali Fear Eats the Soul, which Todd Haynes adapted into Fire oh, from Heaven. I haven't seen it, but I and, know of um, it. Yeah, so he, so he would do these really intense melodramas. And um, mm. it's interesting because it's kind of a very melodramatic plot mm. in a lot of ways that's undercut by the filmmaking mm. and the realism of the performances in every mm. way. I think that's sort of the tension that you're talking about, mm. that it sounds like it should be this kind of, if you sort of read out the plot mm. out loud, you can imagine this very pulpy kind of thing that's a three-handkerchief film. And <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I, I did, in fact, uh, cry <laughs> several times during it. Of course you um, no, well, uh, it's, Here's the thing. Have you seen Silver Linings Playbook? No, I haven't. Okay. So Silver Linings Playbook is a piece of shit. Uh, I, I say that as somebody who that loves a lot of people love. films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it won Oscars. You may be one stuff. of them. Um, yeah. Apparently <laughs> you're yes. wrong. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful film and deeply everybody did important work. It's not a piece of shit. It is spiritually or intellectually dishonest yeah. and full of bullshit yeah. in how it portrays the world. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of my least favorite films ever made. Mm. And... Um, you know, we talk about the briefly in the more like how there's this idea that you and these films on this bit of romantic oblivion. Yeah. And in a great romantic film, you come out with that feeling of romantic oblivion. And if you think about it, you're like, well, you know, obviously they're going to have troubles during the life. It yeah. won't always be that easy. But you're like, they're going to be happily ever after. And that feels really good. Mm. When I saw um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, I was like, those people aren't going to last fucking five minutes before they punch each other in the face. Yeah, yeah. And the only reason this is a happy ending is because they're not f screwing up anyone else's lives. Yeah, yeah. Silver Linings Playbook manages to one-up that by also kind of saying, oh, yeah, not only that, but um, mental illness, yeah, that's easy to look over. You know, you just, just find somebody who'll put up with you and it'll heal everything. Hey, the end. Yeah. Um, and I found that repulsive. The magic trick that Rust and Bone pulls... These are deeply fucked up characters. Yeah, they are. And, and the movie does not attempt to redeem or justify no. the ways that they are fucked up. All it says is that however fucked up they are, their lives are better together than they are apart. Uh, yeah. And it does not ask you to forgive them for their worst things. It does not ask you to believe that they are 
even good human beings at a certain level. Yeah. But it does ask you to understand that these people, both of whom do things that are unforgivable at certain points in yeah. the film, and a, and a thing that I think if you just listed as a plot point, people would say that's unforgivable. And yet, I found myself so engrossed in their emotional lives because, mm. and I, I don't know how much of that's the direction or the performances of yeah. the script and how to break those things apart, but... I, I went with sort of the sort of larger melodramatic arc yeah, it, yeah. in that, you know, these horrible things happen, these beautiful things happen, and in the end, this is where they are. And there was a beauty to that journey that I really went with on a deep emotional level. And it's interesting, we talked to another person after the screening who's just like, I didn't understand why anybody did anything in that movie. Mm. At a certain level, I, I think I said something on Twitter, it's like, you know, I'm sort of jealous if you don't, because like... They are deeply fucked up people, and if you have the capacity to empathize with them, then you're probably a more emotionally healthy person than I am. But I I felt like I understood yeah. every step of the way who they were mm. and why they were, even though my life is very different yeah. from theirs. There's a scene, and I won't spoil any of the details, but there's a scene where um, Cotillard's character learn something about um, Schoenhardt's character and she's in a van mm. watching him and I'll just leave it at that. Mm. It's a scene with, that in a conventional thing you'd expect her to run away and recoil and yeah. then he'd have to talk her back yeah, into yeah. it. And in fact, her reaction is just the opposite and it's one of the interesting ways that it sort of undercuts yeah. some of your conventional expectations. Also, we've alluded to sort of a big event that yeah. happens, which I won't spoil, but you kind of expect that the rest of the film is going to be about uh, the recovery yeah, event. Yeah. And that's like almost like by the third of the way through, it's like, oh yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just not quite thrown away, but pretty close to thrown yeah, away. Yeah. It's, yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's the magic of it is, I keep using this word magic because I do think there is something about an, uh, some films where there's, you know, you, you understand sort of the logic of how the consistent application yeah. of an aesthetic. Like Hanukkah, it's like, it's very clearly like the work of developed craft and rigor. Yeah. Whereas this, it's like, I don't actually understand how all these elements and how all these yeah, different shooting styles and how all of this somehow came together and coheres. And I don't yeah. really understand how he had a vision that pulled that all together. Yeah, it's bizarre because it, it does. It, 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 as a narrative, it's quite cohesive, but also visually, it for whatever reason, it's a cohesive piece. Like, for me, I mean, it's the odd but that kind of sticks out. But for the most part, he's got these weird tonal switches and stylistic switches of the way he films, and they just seem to fit together. I've seen uh, chops and changes like this in other films, and yeah. they seem really clunky. Yeah, well, that's the thing. But you, uh, yeah, it's, it's strange, because cohesive is a strange... I mean, you're, it's, it's probably a good word, because they're cohesive but not consistent. Yeah, yeah. I guess is the um, differentiation that I would use, because I can think of so many different mm. styles of shooting in there. It's just... Stunning that it all kind of gels, and here we are. As a as a kind of story or relation relational piece, one of the things I found interesting was um, and and very kind of emotionally true, is that the very things about him that makes him ideal for her situation in terms of um her being able to get back on her feet after this incident are the very things that then threaten to sort of push them apart. Um, and that she struggles to deal with. Yeah. But that, that's that's life. You know? Well, that's something that's very true, right? It's yeah, about, it, I it mean, the things true. that attract us most to people are also the things that, like, 
then become we issues. Of, yeah, when we confront the full reality of what that means. means yeah, yeah. And um, and in fact, with his, you know, his character, it's like it's only when she's like kind of fully bought into that, yeah, that he actually needs something that she's yeah, yeah. gone past being able to give. And there, you know, I mean, that's a heartbreaking moment. Um, I don't know, but you did you find the ending a little kind of slightly cheesy, rah rah? Um. I mean, it's, it's hard it, for it, me that so so it uses Bonnie Vare, which yeah. um, that song in particular has meant a lot to me over the years, oh, yeah. and and so I I kind of wrestled back and forth with that, but um, no, actually the ending narration was something that really I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it without spoiling it, mm. but it's basically like you know there's a famous story about G Gordon Liddy demonstrating holding his hand over an open flame, mm. and Someone's like, what's the trick? How do you keep it from hurting? And he says, the trick is not minding that, that it hurts. hurts. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's a similar sort of sentiment at the end. Um, there's a Mountain Goats album called We Shall All Be Healed. And, mm. of course, it's a bitter punchline because it's about his year in Portland where mm. he was dealing with all these drug addicts, some of whom you know didn't make it through that year, others of whom made it through that year in institutions and other things and yeah. not everybody was healed yeah. and and that came to mind during it as well is that like uh, that it's not a film where everybody is healed or better at the end like yeah. the characters are all all have their scars yeah very you know in one case you know quite visibly and yeah, in the other yeah. other case mentioned. quite yeah. internally mm. um and they aren't going away and that pain is not going away and the ending of the film explicitly makes clear yeah. that that pain is not being lifted. Yeah. And that was a re- for me that was a really bold statement to make that is very rare in sort of the love conquers all yeah, world yeah. of romance films that you're supposed to be completely healed by this force called love and it makes everything better. Yeah. No it doesn't. It can't. There is going to be this pain and we're moving forward anyway. Yeah. It's what I felt at the end. I yeah. I I just um yeah, really relate to that but it sounds like you had a different relation to the ending yeah I I, I, f- I found it almost just a little bit it felt a little bit sewn up to me it is quite quick I will say that you, yeah. know, you don't have much of a moment and I didn't realize till near the end of that scene that it was the final scene oh right yeah yeah it felt a little bit like that to me but it didn't tarnish the film I thought mm. yeah but I guess one of the things about Rust and Bone for me is that whereas you get a lot of say like Amore is probably going to appeal more to an art house crowd, maybe, yeah. with its sort of formal rigour. I mean, Hanukkah's not to everybody's taste. But Rust and Bone feels like it could have a more a more broad audience who might be a little, little bit confused by some of what goes on, but could probably, you know, deal with that. And that the film, to me, seems entertaining enough, but is also really complex and very interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, certainly the reaction in the States has been the other way around, where oh, really? Amor was much more successful, mm. um, both in terms of awards recognition and box office. Yeah, well, I mean, it's and, like um, Oscars nods and, and wins. And I do think that, like, the couple in Amor is in certain ways more sympathetic to a broad-based audience yeah. than the couple in Rust and Bone. Yeah. Um, and Rust and Bone has some very confrontational yeah. elements that are... I mean, Amor does too, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, but I guess I yeah. see Amor as being kind of more in tune to the classic sort of art house crowd. 
Like yeah. for instance, the um, the Oscar nomination that it got was, uh, or it got several, which was pretty cool. But um, yeah. it won for best foreign film, which is often seen as oh no, it's got subtitles. I mean, <laughs> this, this is this is this is kind of the 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 kind of token sort of nod to there are films made in other countries and weirdos go to cinemas with subtitles to see it. Yeah, kind of thing. And it won that one. Well, then it was even nominated for Best Picture, despite being in foreign language as the best. It's a rare thing. I mean, Three Colors Red may have been the last film. Yeah. But but, but in that sense, it has broad appeal to that group, but that group is not the broad base of big budget cinema. People who are going to see Michael Michael Bay films or even. uh, Wait, are you saying that people who go see Michael Bay films would want to see Rust and Bone? Well, I'm not saying that, (laughs) but I'm saying that is more likely to appeal to that audience than a more. Which has uh, a more locked-in niche audience. Yeah. Like you can say, this group is probably going to love this. Yeah. And we want to give some acknowledgement to that group. Whereas Rust and Bone, I think, would have more of an appeal. Because it has some sort of action and slightly spectacular elements. Even though it, didn't, it probably wouldn't... Pl- it would be it would confuse people because they'd ha- yeah. be hard to pigeonhole it. And so marketing becomes hard and all that kind of stuff. I sort of think of things like, say... I just think um, if you want action, why are you going to go see that when you could see Fast Five? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I mean, like, I, I think of something like, say, um, which is reminiscent as well because of the lack of character arc, um, Bad Lieutenant, Portable New Orleans, which was difficult. Did that even get a release here, though? No, it didn't. It went straight yeah, to DVD. Yeah. But at the same time, it probably, I would say, would have, if people gave it the chance, more broad appeal than a more, except that a more has a definite niche that they know is there. Yeah, I don't know. But, but, how, do you, but like, how do you promote that? Because yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the thing. I think like I think that actually it's sort of the other way around that people oh, really? that um, want their genre films want them to behave in a certain way. Mm. And it's interesting what they will and won't tolerate. I mean, we we're talking about subtitles mm. there, but Fast Five is chock full of subtitles. Yeah, yeah. It was just on TV the other night. And I came home from my South Island jaunt, and my flatmates were watching, and it reminded me that yeah. Um, it's got subtitles all over the place. The last two Tarantino films do. Um, and so there's this kind of myth that like people won't watch subtitled films. It's mm. like, they will, as long as you know District 9 has heaps of subtitles in it. As long as it. it's got um, good genre elements and the rock. Yeah, but, yeah I guess <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. I, I just think that Rust and Bone is a bit long and a bit uncomfortable for a mainstream audience yeah you're probably right and i um i've got a skewed perspective yeah but i mean it's also just knowing like in general what people go to see and and who the theater going audience is and they tend Mm. to be older and i think um an older audience will struggle with rust and bone which is a shame because it's a you know it's a stunning film and um i i'd be surprised if there's many films that affect me more this year than that film did but yeah, that's that, that's the realities of the marketplace. The good thing is it is it is coming out here, which you know is never a guarantee. March twenty eighth, and screening at the Academy the and Academy hopefully some and other places. Possibly the Rialto, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. If you uh, Maticana, I think is playing yeah. it. Yeah, hopefully people will check it out because I think it's a really interesting film. Yeah, and yeah. even if it doesn't work for you entirely, it's definitely like especially this is a bloody horrible month for new releases yeah. <laughs> uh, i mean apart from red house no and rust and bone and then whatever's hanging around i mean we've got uh, great expectations which i guess you saw and liked but... yeah I, I saw it was okay 
He gave it three stars. Yeah. Three is... It didn't read like a good three-star review, though. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I gave it three because it was perfectly adequate and, and okay watching. Like, I, I didn't feel wow, like... Wow, that's I, a glowing endorsement. Yeah. Well, I, and that I wasn't watching it thinking, God, I wish I was somewhere else. Um, I enjoyed it, but then I like period films. But it just... Yeah. It was flat. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's there's the new Oz, there's Broken City, there's yeah. Twenty One and Over. It's just I'm interested just, to see Oz actually. Um, oh really? Yeah. I, I can't get excited. I mean, I know. I mean, I love Drag Me to Hell, and I love some Evil Dead too. But I just and I do love the shots of Mila Kunis in a red suit and stuff. I'll admit that. But yeah, um, I'm just not feeling Oz at all. And um, <laughs> um, Dom Corey, who I talked to briefly, was kind of like, well, you know, it's like. Compared to Mirror Mirror and Snow White and the Huntsman and all that stuff, it's pretty good. I'm like, you know, this is why I'm, gl- <laughs> this is why I'm glad I'm not a professional film critic. Because, yeah. like, it may surprise listeners that we're not highly paid for this. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like, I when I go to see films, I'm not comparing them to the crap that I've been forced to see that I would never see. Yeah. I'm no. comparing them to the films that I like. Yeah. And... It's like better than bad isn't actually it doesn't good, <laughs> but yeah. But you know, I mean, maybe if I hear some good things about it, maybe I'll reconsider. I mean, I've enjoyed mm. Sam Raimi stuff in the past. Yeah, and I'm enough of an auteurist and that I'd uh, give that a go. Yeah, but yeah. So at least there's two bloody decent films to get out and see this month. Yeah, um, Amore is out now. Get along to it. Uh, it's playing. Pretty sure that's at the Rialto. It's definitely at the Academy. Yeah, and either Lido or Capital, I can't yeah. remember which. So. And Rust and Bone comes at the end of the month, 28th, I believe, and that is well worth getting to. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, we've been talking about good films, so hopefully soon we'll start talking about some bad, bad films, films to get the worst yeah, back yeah. and best worst podcast. But until next time, it's Doug. It's Jacob.